Let me just give a commercial real quick for our Sunday night worship that starts in September. We're going to do services on second Sunday nights of the month. So September 9th will be the first one. Um, this is something that has been on Stuart's and my heart for a while to have a time where there's dedicated time for corporate prayer. And so the bookends to each service be about an hour and 15 minutes or so will we'll be some praise and worship at the beginning and about a half hour or so of corporate prayer time to finish off. Um, what goes on in between will vary from month to month. Sometimes we'll have, uh, if there's a missionary in town that we can give more time to to speak. So that'll be the case in October. We're hoping to have Joe Tafigi come and speak. Sometimes it'll be one of our men who will give a message. Sometimes we'll just do some church business. Um, in fact, when we meet in September, we'll have the, the budget upcoming, and we'll also, um, if we have not already by that time announced elder candidates, certainly will by then. Um, so that uh, we we'll, can talk about that process. So that'll be on Sunday night, September 9th. will be the first of those Sunday night praise and worship times. Just really want to encourage you to, to highlight that and join us um, as we get together as a body and pray together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we are this morning, but I want to read to you just a portion of Jesus Christ speaking as he is concluding his time on earth with his disciples. This was in John 13, very familiar words, John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's not a new commandment to love other people, but it was a new commandment to define the standard of that love as being the love of Jesus Christ for his people, that he has called us now to love others as he has loved us, and he has established that and called us to strive to imitate that. As D.A. Carson has said, loving others in a manner like Christ is both our obligation and our privilege. The Holy Spirit enables us, empowers us as believers to love other people, to show a Christ-like love toward them, to love them deeply, even to the degree that, as Jesus said there in John 13, by this all people will know, in a way that signifies that there's something unique about followers of Jesus Christ and how they love. Just to quote again Carson, he says, he's speaking of the love of Christians, and he says, the love of Christians for each other ought to be a reflection of their status and experience as the children of God, reflecting the mutual love of the Father and the Son and imitating the love that has been shown them. And so what already takes place in the Godhead in the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the love that is demonstrated toward us through Christ is all what we are called to do. And so the question then is how, how do we do that? What are some ways in which we love others in a distinctive way, in a, a way that the world sees something unusual about us? What are some ways that you and I can reflect the love of Jesus Christ? And I think that's what we're going to see this morning here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As you'll recall, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica. He writes it to a, a new group of believers in the sense that he had gone there, preached there, first time that they are encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church is born out of that experience. It, persecution immediately begins to erupt, and so Paul and Silas flee. Paul then writes back this letter to the Thessalonian believers for the two purposes that we have talked about throughout, and that is to encourage them, A, that they are standing firm, that this is God's work in causing you to stand firm even amidst persecution, and B, to cause them to press on, to say, 
you're good. You're standing fast. Now press on in the faith. Continue to grow. Don't be content. So standing firm and pressing on in union with Jesus Christ. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the first two verses of chapter 4 because they sort of set the, the framework for the rest of the book in that they introduced this series of topics and they put it all under the heading of you are to continue to grow in pleasing God. You are doing it. You are serving him, you are pleasing him, but now continue to do so more and more. Grow in pleasing God. And so um, that is the urging that then allows Paul to launch into this series of topics that follow. And here are areas where you can grow in pleasing God. And we talked about one of them last week in that category of sexual purity. Sexual purity pleases God. And so he addressed that and now in verse 9, he moves to this issue of brotherly love. And so we're going to look this morning at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. And it describes for us three very specific ways that we can demonstrate the love of Christ to people around us. Three ways that we can love people, that the Spirit empowers us to love people so that they might see Christ in us. So let's just read the whole section. Starting in verse 9, it says, Now... Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I've said this before, just... It's worth reiterating that 1 Thessalonians is really a manual in discipleship. It's, it's to help us to, to know how God calls us to disciple others and to influence their lives, whether it be discipling children, uh, new believers, people that God has brought into your life, husbands and wives encouraging one another. Paul's pattern here is this sweet blend of encouragement and exhortation. You are already loving one another. In fact, you're, you're loving others, and that's wonderful. Now, he says, do so more and more. He's excited about what he sees God doing in them, but he's urging them to say, it's not enough. There's still room to grow. Um, he encourages them in areas to continue to produce fruit in their lives, and he exhorts them to push on. No believer in Jesus Christ loves perfectly. None of us love perfectly as, as Christ does. We all fall short. We all have our moments when we are less than loving toward other people, um, when we are almost tempted at times toward hatred toward other people, and, and we lose that love. We're not loving the way we should. We struggle with it. And so it is God's kindness to continually come back to us and to urge us to love others and to show us ways in which we can do that to help us to love them. Andrew Young wrote this quote about the need for Christians to grow in love, kind of using a framework that is in Ephesians 3 when it talks about praying that they would grow in understanding the love of God and Christ. Young says, it may grow in breadth as it reaches out to embrace more of our fellow Christians. It may grow in depth as it enters more deeply into the hurts and joys of others. And it may grow in length as it forbears more patiently and forgives more heartily. A commitment to love others well will cause us to grow more and more in this grace. We are called to continue to grow in loving others. That's the urging of this passage. So verse 9, Paul begins and says, all right, 
now this topic of brotherly love. Something has either come to him by way of when he was with them or Timothy's report, but in some way maybe this question or this issue has come up and so he says, now concerning brotherly love. And his first comment is, I don't really have to write to you on this because you've already been taught by God how to love one another, as in fact you are doing. He's probably referring to at least two things when he says you've already been taught by God. One is he had been there. He had come and planted the church. And when you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are preaching the love of God. It's hard to avoid talking about the love of God when you present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he has already taught them in person. And secondly, is no doubt the witness of God's Spirit within them. The same thing that you and I experience when the Holy Spirit is, is prodding us about our love when we're showing lack of love towards someone and we are convicted about that. The Holy Spirit fulfilling that same ministry that Jesus talked about in John 16 when he said, if I go, the Spirit will come and will remind you of these things. He will teach you these things. And so we are taught by God about his love and about loving others by virtue of the Spirit at work within us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message about love. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be propitiation for our sins. From the moment God saves us through his gospel, we are beginning to encounter the love of God. The moment that we first realize that Jesus Christ, as, as unlovely as we are, he gave himself for us and loved us, We begin to understand the love of God, and we grow in that comprehension of what it is and and what it is we are supposed to live out. Ephesians 3 speaks of Paul praying for believers to increase in understanding and comprehending the love of God in Christ, the breadth and height and depth and length. His prayer is that you would know this even more and more because he understands that as believers, we know it, we know God loves us, but we need to learn it more. Not only so we understand who we are in Christ, but so that we then love others, that we seek to to imitate that love. So we are being taught about the love of Christ, and we're being taught to live it out, to love others. Paul commends the Thessalonians. He says, you are already doing this. As young believers, here they are in this pivotal city of Thessalonica, and they are already having an impact by loving others in other communities, because his comment here in verse 10, is that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We know Paul went on to Philippi and Berea, and perhaps there's other towns that that we don't see recorded in Scripture where Christian communities are born and they begin to grow. And somehow, this church at Thessalonica being on the trade routes that it is, they're having an impact. And they are ministering to people and serving them and sacrificing for them and showing the love of Christ. And Paul says, "You, you are already doing this. But then in verse 10, he he gets to that urging, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And that's what leads him into now three specific applications. Here are three ways that you can love people, and they're going to look like just sort of conduct issues, do these certain things. But what Paul is tying them to is the love of God in Christ. These are ways in which you can show Christ's love to other people. These aren't just behaviors. They please God, yes, but they have to do with how you love others. And so it very much follows the the same pattern we saw last week. The, The urging there was be holy, pursue holiness, 
and the practical application of that was by pursuing sexual purity, by controlling your body, by not yielding to lusts, by not giving in to immorality. So it was holiness was sort of the blanket, and then the application was sexual purity. And, and in the same way in this passage, brotherly love is the statement, love more and more. Well, how? Here you go. Here's the specifics now on, on how that looks. And same thing with last week. We saw the why. He, he said, I, I, I'm telling you why sexual purity is important, because that's a way that you love people. That's a way you don't wrong them or transgress them. That's a way you reflect the character of God. So too here. He gives kind of the reason why there in verse 12 when he says this is about how you walk in front of outsiders. This is so that you're not dependent unnecessarily on someone. This is how the world sees you. And so loving God and Christ is important in that sense for that, that testimony. It's not the, the Christ-like love that, that we are to have is not something that just stays in here, in this community, amongst ourselves. The goal of it, as Jesus said in John 13, and as Paul is getting at here in 1 Thessalonians 4, is that if God's love is changing us so that we are different in attitude toward other people, that is showing them Christ. That is giving them a bit of a glimpse of, of the body of Christ. And it is a, a transforming work in our own lives, but then it should be something that is evident outside the local church. They may not understand it. They may not get why we are unusually sacrificial or loving toward them, but that's what opens the door for us to be able to talk to them about Jesus Christ. So three specific things, and they're all here in verse 11. He gives the series of them. He says, We've urged you to do, we urge you to do this more and more, verse 11, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. If you are loving people like Jesus Christ loves people, then there are at least these three qualities that you should be striving for in your life. I put them under the headings of peaceful, kind, and hardworking. They don't necessarily need headings because they're really pretty simple there in verse 11. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands. But just to put them under one word headings, you've got peaceful, we'll start with. To aspire to live quietly. There's almost a an irony in the way he words this, in that the idea for aspire is, is what the New American Standard captures really well when it translates this verse as, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So it's, it's be zealous and, and be ambitious, pursue quietness. It's not kind of the way we put those two together, but that's the way he does here. It's aspire to this, desire to be this to live a quiet life. That Greek word for aspire is a blend of two common Greek words, philos, which gives us love, brotherly love. It's the same word brotherly love comes from, but it's also time, which is honor. So it's the idea of loving honor, and, and what the point of the word for aspire is want this, be eager for this, just in a way that you would love to be honored for this, love to be recognized for leading a quiet life. So we're to zealously pursue quiet living. Be ambitious to be recognized as someone who lives quietly. People in the first century Rome were not all that different in terms of attitudes and, and the way they thought about other people as we are here today. And that is they dealt with the same sort of craving for recognition, for having my voice heard, 
for having people acknowledge me. They had the same sorts of things that we struggle with, with wanting to be recognized and important, wanting you to to not think my job is menial or that I am somehow uh, not worthy of attention. We we, we crave sometimes that, that sort of recognition. We don't want to be seen as insignificant or inconsequential. We're in a culture today where the Internet just feeds this mentality. Everyone has an opinion, and everyone has an avenue to voice their opinion. Everyone has an opportunity now to post their opinion and and have their opinion read and and get likes and told that your opinion is really good. I like your opinion. It sort of feeds, though, that mentality to, to want to be out there, to want to be loud sometimes, to want to be heard, to want to be recognized. Now, this call to live quietly is not... It's not advocating that we withdraw from society. It's not saying, you know, we just be like monks in a monastery somewhere and and, and have no effect. But what it's doing is it's urging us to think about what's really important. It's urging us to check ourselves, that not everything needs to be put out there. Not everything needs to be said. There's a place for being quiet. There's a place for not being the center of attention or being rambunctious. And it really helps us to come back to that question of what, what characterizes what comes out of my mouth. If I, if I talk to the people who are your coworkers, or more importantly, I talk to your family that's around you all the time and say, what kind of speech do you often hear from this person? What, what characterizes most of what comes out of their mouth? What, what would that be? Do I spend a lot of time talking about me? Do I spend a lot of time complaining about things? Am am I complaining about my job? Do I spend a lot of time complaining about politics or or arguing about certain things or just being upset? The call here is to aspire to live quietly. It is to check ourselves. Not not everything needs to be said. There there are times we just need to slow down and, and be quiet. Philo was a Jewish philosopher, lived in the first century. He wrote the same time Paul did, was writing on philosophical debates from a secular Jewish perspective. And he writes about what he calls the the man who is in the theater and the marketplace and the courts and the streets and who has nothing but worthless talk, but he's everywhere and you seem to hear him everywhere. And he said this, Philo wrote, "His, his tongue he lets loose for unmeasured Endless, indiscriminate talk, bringing chaos and confusion into everything, mixing true with false, fit with unfit, public with private, holy with profane, sensible with absurd, because he has not been trained to see that silence in season is most excellent. Isn't that a great statement? That there there are times when really the best thing we can do is just be quiet. And that's what the urging is here, that we, we pause and we think about what we are saying. That's where we make the most noise is with our mouths. Ephesians 4.29 warns exactly along this line. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Only such as is good for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Or as most of your mothers once said, if you have nothing nice to say. Don't, oh, come on. More of you knew that than a few of you. If you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Mom told you that at some point or another, right? Or you've told your kids that. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything. We can love others by being peaceful, by being on the quiet side, by being restrained, by not having to, to vocalize every thought that comes to mind and complain about everything as the world does. 
You can also love by being kind. You know, and just sort of trying to characterize this phrase here where he says, to mind your own affairs. I think there's a sense in which what he's saying here is reminiscent of Matthew 7 when it says to take the log out of your own eye before you seek to pick the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not saying don't ever get involved in someone else's life, but it's what's the motive here? How much time do I spend meddling in someone else's affairs to the degree that I'm trying to get them to conform to what I want them to do, to the degree that I'm complaining because they don't do things the way I want them to do? How much am I engaging in someone's affairs in an unhelpful way? Not that seeking to build them up, but that is just getting involved where I really have nothing edifying to offer. Again, not a call to isolationism where I ignore others because the, the, the New Testament is filled with one another's, where we are to be correcting one another and encouraging one another and admonishing one another. There are places for all of that, but the constant urging of Scripture is, am I checking my own heart in doing so? Am I, am I concerned about my own motives? Have I meddled with my own heart and why I'm doing this before I've begun to meddle in what, what you're doing? Am I minding my own affairs carefully enough so that when I come to you, you see that it is done out of love, that, that I, am, I am just trying to care for you and do what Jesus would do? Otherwise, if I don't need to meddle, then I, I don't need to do so. Again, verse 12, I think, also reminds us this is more than just a brotherly thing because the context is how we're living out before the world so that you may walk properly before outsiders. We deal with unbelievers all the time, and, and, and the temptation for most of us in dealing with the unsaved world is to judge them pretty harshly. Their lives may well be a mess. Their values are likely to be inconsistent and, and ungodly. Their agendas, for the most part, are probably man-centered. That doesn't mean... We have to spend our time shouting at them, that we have to spend our time criticizing them, that we have to mock them. This is the way dialogue goes nowadays, as we know what social media has created now is this environment where everything gets louder and meaner and more vitriolic, and we should not do that. There's things we have, we have no business even speaking to. We don't need to get involved in unless we're coming in some way to bring the love of Christ and minister in some way. Martin Luther wrote this about these kinds of, as he described, meddling people. He said, they have the notion that they must control everything and superintend and criticize what others do. They stir up nothing but mischief and have no grace to do anything good. Martin Luther probably got accused of being graceless at a few points in his life, but you get the point. Is the unbelieving world went wrong when it talks about morals and the meaning of life? Probably, most times, yes. Our job is still to love them like Christ and preach truth to them and call them to his gospel. The sort of meddlesome engagement that only ever seeks to correct behavior to get it so that we're happy with it and we're comfortable with it so that it conforms is not from a heart of Christ-like love which sees people as lost and in dying and in need of the transformation of the gospel, not just some behavioral reforms. They need Christ. They need a heart transformation that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to I hold these two, and, and I want to just, we'll come back to them for one last application at the end, but let's just jump on to the third one, which is to work with your hands there at the end of verse 11. To work with your hands. I think he ties that clearly to verse 12 when he says that you may be dependent on no one. Idleness was somehow a problem 
in the church at Thessalonica. This is not the only place he addresses this issue of, hey guys, you just you need to get about working with your hands. He's going to come back to this again in 2 Thessalonians, and he's even harsher at this point in 2 Thessalonians, so even harsher, he's more direct about it in 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. <laughs> Pretty direct statement, isn't it? He's addressing the things that he's already taught here in 1 Thessalonians, and he's having to come back to him in 2 Thessalonians and say, remember the minding your own affairs part and the work with your hands part? You're not doing it, some of you, and you need to. You need to stop being so preoccupied with everything and everyone around you and do your job that, that you've been called to do. Scholars have all sorts of debates as to why this particular issue seems to come up in First and Second Thessalonians. One is the argument that he deals a lot with the return of Christ in both letters, and there seems to be at least some misunderstanding about when Christ is going to return. And so some speculate that there almost developed an attitude in Thessalonica that Paul, when he had preached the gospel, had taught them that there is hope in Christ and Jesus is returning for you. And some took that to mean, well, good, I don't have to do anything anymore. Kind of like we today could say, well, I'll, I'll just run up the credit cards because Jesus is coming tomorrow and I'm not going to have to pay it. I'll be gone. And that seems to be the attitude perhaps towards work of, we'll just wait for Jesus. You know, we'll just hang out and, and not do anything but wait for Jesus. There may have been that. Certainly they're, they're under persecution. So there may have been a, just a simple sense of self-pity, a, a sense of, of, of depression, if you will, a reaction to this kind of persecution that leads them to not want to work and, and perhaps um, developing some lazy habits as a result of that. We also know that Greek culture had a tendency to, to look down on manual labor. The prevalence of slavery in the Greek culture was to do a lot of the hard physical work, and the average Roman citizen did not, and they looked down on it. And, and so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ who now has been, in the course of persecution, lost your job and, and having to do anything you can to survive, and that may be very menial work, at least in that culture's definition, uh, you may not want to do that either. You may choose to just sit and let others help you in some way. So all of those may have fit into this. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is God's clear instruction is that one way we show love for others is by not putting them in the situation of having to provide for me if I am capable of providing for myself. I am not loving to you if I am capable of work, and yet I say, I'd rather not. I'll, I'll let my family take care of that for me, or I'll let the government take care of that for me. I'll let somebody do it because I don't want to. That's not loving. That's not, not loving toward other people. Not being diligent when one is capable of doing so means imposing on others. We are called to work hard, and as he describes here, to not be dependent. If that is at all possible and you are capable of it, then that is what he has called you to. And so by fulfilling that responsibility, we not only avoid dependence, but it's a great testimony. And that's why Paul will speak in other letters to work as unto the Lord. Do your work out in the culture as if you are serving Jesus Christ because we spend a lot of time at work. And, and that's an opportunity to show Christ in that we engage with work willingly and we do it well because we are serving Christ and we are seeking to be responsible and not dependent. So work hard. All right, let me go back to, I said I'd give you one last application, and I think this is really interesting and really relevant to us who live in the D.C. area in particular. Um, this 
passage, when he says to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, there's a lot of good biblical scholars who have looked at the language Paul is using and looked at writers like Philo and many others and, and, and see what, that, what Paul is saying there. Those are kind of wisdom statements. Aspire to live quietly and not meddle in your own affairs. That isn't necessarily something that only Christians can think of. It's clearly God's word, but it's an issue that was discussed in, in, in throughout the Roman Empire. There was this philosophical debate during the first century that really centered in on sort of political, civic involvement. How much are you engaged in the culture? How much are you involved in, in the politics and the activities of the culture? One writer put it like this, the expressions to live quietly and to tend to one's own affairs go together and have unmistakable political connotations. In other words, the, the, the wording that Paul uses here, similar kinds of words were used in some of the other writers by secular writers who were debating that Roman citizens should be eagerly involved in politics and in civic affairs, and others like the Epicureans who were saying, oh no, we should be quiet and we should aspire for quiet lives and we should not be engaged and we should leave all that to the other people who want to take care of that. And so there was this sort of ongoing debate over engaging with the world, the culture, the government, the civic activities, or withdrawing and sort of being kind of an isolationist in some sense. Abraham Mallerby, who's written a great commentary in First Thessalonians, says, Greco-Roman society was driven by an intense desire for recognition, which drove especially the upper classes to compete in dispensing charity. He uses the word benefactions, but in dispensing charity to cities, special causes, and institutions. What he's saying is the society had a, a pretty favorable view toward ambition and public service. Those who were out there and who were doing good things and, and helping to make the, the society a better place, that that was considered a, a worthy pursuit in that society. It was not, generally speaking, sort of a, a laid-back society. The encouragement was to, to get involved and, and, and be charitable and, and, and work within the culture. It's a spirit that I... I think when you think about our culture around D.C., it's not all that unfamiliar in that there are lots of people who are anxious to make the world a better place, who believe that they have ideas that if we do this, we can, we can make this country better, we can make the world better, and, and, and in their desire, perhaps there, there's something good there in the sense, even though all our righteousness is this filthy rag, so I qualify that word good, but, but there's at least this intent to, I want to, I just want to make things better, and, and I have a way of doing it, and this is my agenda for doing it, and yet there's also still, for the unbelieving world, I think as, as Mallerby is pointing out, there's always still that underlying desire to also be recognized, I want to be charitable, and I want to fix the world and the country the way I want it to be, but I also want you to see me doing it too so that you can say, that's impressive. That's very charitable of you. And, and those are good ideas that you have. I don't think there's any area of our country that is quite like D.C. in terms of attracting people who believe they know what's best for the country. I mean, you know, I, I, having worked several years as a congressional staffer, I know that there are people who move to this area with the specific intent of making America a better place because I know how to do it. My agenda, be it left, be it right, I've got the agenda that will we'll just we'll get along and we'll be happy and, and, and we just got to do what I say, right? Just follow that, that kind of agenda. And they think they can change the world 
And so they come here for that express purpose and usually find out very soon that it doesn't quite work that way. The, the data also tells us this is the highest area in the country of co college graduates. So we are surrounded by an area that is full of smart, generally successful, pretty ambitious, probably headstrong people. Some of the reason that some of them have come is just to try to affect change, to, to somehow get involved in the policies and the laws of the federal government to affect change to make it all better. I've heard it said that Congress is like a gathering of 535 class presidents from high school. Think about your class president. They are ambitious. They've got plans and goals. They're the one who was out there. And now you put them all together, and they're all sort of competing with each other for, for attention and, and whose ideas are best. You, you don't get elected to office unless you are willing to stand in front of crowds and say, I am right, and he is wrong, and I know what to do, and he doesn't. That's just the nature of the kind of ambition you need to be able to do that. I am not criticizing the individuals. I am, I'm thrilled when we have godly people in public service, and we need to be praying for all of them. But I say all that because I think there's some... I think there's some ground for comparison to the first century Roman Empire and the, the very debate that Paul is writing into with these Thessalonian believers, these people who live in this cosmopolitan, important capital city of the region, who are engaged in commerce and who are active citizens in the Roman Empire and who now, by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, have suddenly slipped to the bottom. They are now no longer the, 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 the leading members of society. They are now the despised members of society. They are now the ones that, that the leaders of the town, as we saw when Paul is chased out of Thessalonica, are saying, these are troublemakers. We don't want these people around. And, and so a lot of these people who came to faith in Christ suddenly were relegated to status of outsider. They're ostracized by family and friends and jobs, and life has changed and you have a society here, a society that embraces everything, godless idolatry and rampant immorality, but now Christianity, the calls are to stop it at any cost, even if it means arresting people. Worse yet, even if it means stoning them, if it means executing them. Stop it. In a public square that placed a tremendously high value on philosophical debate and rhetoric, there was suddenly a clear and violent call to shut this message down. We, we don't want Paul to preach here. Because when Paul preaches, all of these lives start changing and people start thinking differently, and we don't want that preaching. And so we can, we can have all the idolatry and the immorality and all of the philosophical debates you want, but not that, not Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar at all to where we stand? All views welcomed here except those of Jesus Christ. We've got to come back to the conviction that we will not change the world through politics. That doesn't mean that we should abandon the public square. We should speak for life and truth and virtue. We should make the case for the things that God makes the case for, but also understanding that our engagement in that public square must be motivated by Christ-like love and humility. It must be because we care about the souls of the people around us, and their eternal destiny is far more important than exactly what shape our government looks like at any given moment. That's our pursuit. 
That's what we're called to if he's saying here, live quietly, aspire for a quiet life, and, and mind your own affairs. If, if our response to the culture is, is the same level of hatred and vitriol with a few less cuss words in it, we're not getting it done. Our calling is to Christ-like humility and to showing them something different and to bringing to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so whether it's engagement on social media or political debates with that family member that you have to sit by at Thanksgiving, whether you want to or not, and who is completely different from you on all of these things, to just engaging with your colleagues at work who spend most of their time complaining about those people, whoever the opposite is of that worker, those people are altogether wrong. How you respond in those situations is opportunities to show Christ-like love. How you react, what you say, all shows that. We're called to be different, to be peaceful in a world that is in chaos, to be kind toward people who think and act and look different from us, we're called to show a kind of generosity that measures people generously and doesn't demand that they conform to our standards if they don't know our Savior. We have to call them to Jesus. That's where their hope is. And where we, where we fall short on that, and we do, most of us do it one time or another, that's the beauty of the gospel is there's repentance and forgiveness. That's the beauty of being able to go back and say, hey, please forgive me. I just got so upset about that. And, and I didn't need to. Please forgive me for the way I reacted. We can repent and, and enjoy the, the beauty of the forgiveness of the gospel. And, and we have God's spirit to help us to do this. Remember in Galatians 5, fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those attributes that model the love of Christ. We hate evil, but among lost sinners, who practice it as a way of life, we are to be salt and light. And so the love of Christ that is evident through our lives should show them a Savior who rescued us from futile, self-serving ambition and now has given to us abundant, eternal life in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the simplicity of your word as it speaks to how we ought to love others. Now, Lord, please help us to do it. We pray that your spirit would be at work in my heart and the lives of my brothers and sisters this week to, to help us this week to cultivate patience, love, kindness, faithfulness, goodness. Help us to live out the love of Christ with people who are different, whose opinions are different, whose worldviews are opposite. Help us to find ways to still be sacrificial, to still be servants, to still show them the same generous love that you directed and initiated toward us even while we were yet unlovely sinners in rebellion against you. Father, we thank you for a country in which we have the freedom to proclaim the gospel, to gather publicly. Whatever comes of those freedoms, Lord, we, we trust that your church will stand firm on your word and will continue to, to aspire to live quietly and to mind our affairs and to work hard and to love people as you have loved us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, 
I pray that even today you would overwhelm them with your love. That in their sin, you have sent a savior to pay a ransom that they deserve to pay for their sin as each of us does. And you have sent a savior to stand in their place and take the punishment that they deserve. Cause them to have their eyes open to see the wonderful love that you have shown them and are showing them through Christ. Lord, help us this week to love like our Savior. Help us as we are around family members and tempted to act unlovely. Cause us to ponder again the calling here to love brothers, love those around us even more and more. We pray these things in Jesus' name.